A single bullet had pierced Keon's chest. Omari pushed towards the police tape, the first time he'd been in a scene like this. He'd arrived just in time to see Keon, his 19-year-old former player and friend, being zipped into a body bag. Welcome to the Sports Literati Podcast. I'm one of your co-hosts, David Shu, And I'm your other co-host, David Bryant. Welcome aboard. All right, Dave, we are back for a much delayed and thanks to our social media account, anticipated podcast about Across the River, Life, Death, and Football in an American City by Kent Babb. Dave, it's great to connect and get to talk to you about sports books again. Yeah, absolutely. It's been a couple months since our last one. Uh, you know, it's the summertime here in, in Toronto. Things get busy. You know, we both have kids. <laughs> Not that that's an excuse or anything like that, but, you know, we got to keep them occupied in these, uh, you know, summer months. Um, so, yeah, we sort of hit a hit a roadblock but yeah we got we got through it and we're here we're back yes we are back and we're here to talk about football just in time for the football season that's around the corner but not just any football not nfl football not college not even college football we're talking about good old american deep south high school <laughs> football like friday night light style football oh yeah oh yeah so this is this is going to be a bit of a change of pace and a We've been covering a bunch of topics that are a little bit more esoteric, right? So we were talking about Mount Everest a couple months ago. Now we're going to be talking about high school sports. This is not the, uh, you know, Hollywood, professional, big money stuff that we're talking about lately. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, there is probably nobody in this book that anyone's ever heard of. <laughs> uh, any of the characters, none of these are players that went pro or made it to the pros. Mm -hmm. I mean... Some of them barely yeah. made it into college it's football. Yeah. It's it's not the point at all. These these are, this is a story, and and it's a story about inner city New Orleans and uh, this you know football program that exists within it. And you know this could be a tale that's told in other places like in Mississippi, Alabama, you know Texas. Th this sort of resonates, I think, across the uh, whole American Deep South, for sure. So I'll give you the quick two-minute drill about what this book is about. The author, Kent Babb, is a sports writer for the Washington Post. So he's actually a pretty renowned sports writer. And I think the main thing to know about him is he's not black. He's actually a white guy who plants himself with the 2019 edition of the Edna Carr High School football team, right? And Edna Carr High School is a high school in a place called Algiers, which is just off the Mississippi River on the other side of the Mississippi River from the, Louisi the Louisiana Superdome, I think. I think it's uh, across the river from the French Quarter, which okay. is like the most sort of touristy part right. of New Orleans. I have never been to New Orleans, but it seems like a fun place to visit. There's a lot of tourist activity, right? Fancy food, Mardi Gras, but you go across the river and you're in the jungle, right? Like the ghettos. And as a person who's never really been to these parts, the closest thing I could relate to this is that it's like West Baltimore in The Wire, right? A lot of gun violence, a lot of young men dropping dead, a lot of broken up families. It's pretty much the complete opposite of what you would see if you were a tourist in New Orleans. And it's very close by. 
the football team at this place, Edna Carr High School, is actually, when we meet the team, a championship level, a championship caliber team, the three-time defending state champions. They're they're prepping for a run at their fourth consecutive state championship, and they're being led by a coach named Bryce Brown, who is the main character of the book. He's the dude who is not just coaching football, but trying to do his best to keep some semblance of normalcy for these kids. Like he's trying to pull a lot of these kids out of these dead end situations, right? Keep them alive, get some of them to college, try to get them, set them up on the right path, right? And and that's the fundamental narrative of this book is can the coach do this and what is he what what are the details of him trying to bring these these kids out of this disaster and through it you know we we get to meet other members of his coaching staff we get to meet the we get to meet some of the players on the team we touch on stories about how some of the players have been shot a few of the famous players have died over time in random acts of violence we get to know a bit of the family life of some of these players it's a really really deep dive into a world that none of us well, that i don't know a whole lot about for sure right like I, I was gonna say none of us but i really mean none of us middle class you know people reading sports books for fun probably we don't know a lot about this part of america but it is actually like you said a very large part of america it's a large population that is living in this type of situation and and quite sad actually as you, as you get through the book yeah, no, a- a- absolutely. And I mean, you mentioned The Wire before. That's almost how I've I related to this book yeah. is through how I watched The Wire, you know, many years ago. I guess it would have been 10 years, almost like more than 10 years ago at this point mm-hmm. and how I could see the similarities. I mean, The Wire is a fictional story, you know, in, in but with many kernels of truth from how I understand it. Right. right? Well, and The so, Wire was written by... David Simon, who had followed police around in West Baltimore for a number of years, right? So really knew up close and personal what was going on on the street level, between, you know, with the drug trade and drug dealing. This book, similar in a way in that Kent Babb is following this football team around and really getting us into the nitty-gritty of their day-to-day lives. Yeah, I think there is a, a difference, though. The Wire really, the, the violence centered around the drug trade, yeah. I would say in this book, they don't talk about that too much. Maybe a lot of the violence does center around it, but they, they do bring up this concept of like neighborhood beefs and how a lot of the violence just happens around being uncomfortable with people from other neighborhoods, which is a pretty, you know, odd concept. Some one that I haven't sort of explored or, or heard about really. I mean, I point. guess The Wire touched on this a little bit with the whole like East Side versus West Side beef that was happening on the show. But this book, I think you're right. It doesn't specifically talk about why guns and violence are happening. It kind of points to the hopelessness of the overall situation for these young men and women. And it seems like that hopelessness is the driving force of the violence, but doesn't specify, you know, what is the role of drugs exactly? What is the role of crime exactly it just seems like overall the the young people in these neighborhoods are growing up with a sense that they have no future and if you have no future then you expect that you're going to get shot when you're 20 because everyone else you know has already been shot and somebody you know has already died right and so you just kind of grow up knowing that there's this clock ticking over you and you're going to go nowhere so what's the point 
and the coach's job is to try to lift people beyond that and is a very difficult task that he has taken on. Yeah, that's true. I, I think you, you put it really well. Hopelessness is sort of the factor that is driving all this this crime. Yeah. And I think also this hopelessness is also driving this football team and is a big reason for the success of this football team. It's pushing these people who are in hopeless, what, what they feel are hopeless situations and making them part of something that's not hopeless, basically. Mm-hmm. You right. know, and that, that is that is a big motivating factor for the team. It's a big motivating factor for the coaches, particularly Bryce Brown, the head coach. And being a part of, you know, a, a real community for the first time has led to these, you know, multiple repeat championships. So <laughs> Well, that and the fact that Coach Brown is an offensive genius. <laughs> That that is true. He does it, it does come across as he's quite the offensive tactician, um, and you know his talents do extend beyond just motivating troubled mm. youth. Right. Although that is a big part of his job as well. Right. So let's talk about Coach Brown first, because I had it that we should talk about some of the memorable characters in this book. He's he is the main character. He's a huge, literally huge personality, but a huge guy. Uh, what do you think of him? Well, the the book does basically orbit around him. Um, he is he is the main character in the book. Uh, I ha- I came away thinking that he's what I'm going to remember the most from this book, mm. uh, because every story about every player, every former player, every coach, basically ends with him. He's connected to the, those people in in real life ways, right? right? And he has all these sort of deep and meaningful connections with everybody in the book, <clears throat> and so he's the he's the he's the guy I'm going to remember the most from this book. And I de- I definitely came away with a lot of admiration for him, um, you know, both as a football coach tact- and, and tactician, uh, tactical tacticianer, person, a tacticianer, practitioner, practitioner, trying to find the right word it's there. Tactician, you're right. <laughs> tactician, okay. Um, and and also like the amount of care he puts into his job and how much he cares about his players like he is always available for phone calls he he answers phones in the middle of the night takes in players into his home you know if they have no food to eat or clothes he provides them he takes them out for dinners to help them understand the real world he he's not just a a football coach he's also like oh, like a life coach a a psychological coach in a way. He has all these sort of psychological maneuvers that he's using throughout the book, uh, you know, far more than I would expect from a, you know, high school college or high school football coach. Mm-hmm. Like I just came away with a tremendous amount of respect for what he's trying to do here. And the fact that he had many opportunities to move on and move up to a higher position in say a college. Mm-hmm but he decided to stick around just increase my admiration like it almost feels like this is what he was made to do (laughs) i think part of it as well is like it doesn't seem like he has a family or kids right and so he can really devote his life to these kids and to this job right and you know say what you will uh, about that how one-sided of a life that is Uh, i i just came away thinking like this is this is a hell of a, a coach and role model what did you think about him? No, he definitely comes off as a great man, right? He's he's going above and beyond the call of duty. 
I think my lasting Im- image of him is going to be, you know, he gets a phone call. Maybe one of his players has been hurt or, you know, he, someone can't reach a player. He immediately thinks that the player might be dead or has been shot because that's so run of the mill. So middle of the night pops into his car and drives around town looking for his players, right? And this happens repeatedly throughout the book. That'll be my lasting image. It'll be this huge coach sitting in this beat up old vehicle with a whole bunch of, you know, old hamburger wrappers in the back seat, looking for his players, hoping that his players are alive. Like, I feel like we live in a sports culture where we really celebrate successful coaches, like coaches that win a lot of games, right? Like Nick Saban or Bill Belichick and Coach Krzyzewski and whatnot. And then they do any little thing to connect with their players and it gets celebrated. Like this guy is going way beyond that, right? He, he is trying to pull these guys out of hell, right? And, and he's doing it for nothing, like very little amount of money, the stuff is kind of eating him up. You can get that image throughout the book. And I think it's it's a story that's really worth telling, that this is a guy who really, really cares. The other aspect of it that I thought was that he's only 34 years old, right? <laughs> At the time of this book, he's in his early 30s. And I, I thought when I was reading it initially... Like, that I was hearing about like a 60 year old man. Like this sounds like a guy who's been through everything and you know, an old wise person that's trying to lift people out of, out of their situation. I couldn't believe he was only 30 something, right? He sounds like he's, you know, been through world war two, world war one. Like this guy could be 60 and I would have believed the story. Yeah, absolutely. But I think the, the thing we're missing here a bit is that someone who's 34 growing up there is almost like someone who's 50 growing up in a normal environment. Absolutely. Like he's seen too much. Like he, like we, we talked about how death and murder have touched every character in this book practically. Right. At some level, like he's had some really close people in his life, you know, gunned down in, in, this, in this neighborhood that they, they grew up in, basically. Right. The... So he's he's a great character. There is this whole plot line about whether he's going to leave the school, right? They the there's there's this issue where he's been successful. He's kind of done everything there is to do at the high school level and there are people asking him to come, you know, coach college football, you know, come to Grambling and uh lift a bigger program up. And I won't spoil it for people because this is one of the things that if you do read the book, you know, it's a it's an interesting thing. It's an interesting device that propels the story along. But it's just a very interesting portrait of a very complex person in a very difficult situation. So he's my number one character. The other character that I will remember, I think a few years from now, I'm going to remember two things from this book. One is Coach Brown. And the other one is the mom of one of the players. Oh, of Joe, uh, of Joe's, Joe, Joe's mother, Joe's mother. Yeah. Yeah. So this, this character is basically a character that's completely foreign or alien to me, you know, in terms of my real life experience, this is, so Joe is a, you know, a kid growing up hard scrabble life. But one of the reasons is his mother is out on the street hustling, right? Selling drugs, slinging on the street corners and all the things that you normally teach your kid growing up. Like, you know, be kind to people, uh, you know, keep your nose out of trouble. She teaches her son the opposite, right? Which is you got to be ready to kill or be killed, right? Everything is about like protect yourself, uh, stand up for what you stand up or else you're going to get pushed down. 
teaches him how to become like a really hardened individual. And yet, and, and for me as a Chinese Canadian, I'm looking at this and like, what kind of parenting is this? Right. But at the same time, this is a real character. And, it, and I don't want to spend our whole podcast like invoking the wire, but there was a character in the wire that was like this. If you remember, you remember the character of, of Naaman who was not cut out for the street, but his mom kept pushing him to become a gangster and sell drugs because that was what her husband or the guy's dad had done, right? And eventually she had to let him go because he just wasn't cut out for this life. This is actually that character. And I remember watching The Wire back in the day thinking, that woman is completely unrealistic. Who wants their son to become a drug dealer, right? But that's just this. I guess when you're in that culture, you're in that environment, some people want their children to do these things. It's that's completely alien to me. That's true. Like you, you, you know what you see, right? And if all you see uh, in your hood is the people who are doing well are people who are, you know, selling drugs and making money and right. driving nice cars, wearing nice clothes, that's that's what you aspire to be. Yeah. Um. You know, in in sort of this limited worldview that you can have when you when you grow up in that kind of environment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that was a really well drawn out character in this book uh really made me kind of empathize with what she is going through as a person like she gets put away in prison at some point has to come out and then sort of reconnect with her son and start to form a better relationship with him and they only have each other there's no father figure in their life right so it's a that i thought was the most moving and and interesting relationship in the book I, I just will always remember one of her key tenets was never get into a car with someone who invites you uh, <laughs> in for a ride. Right. Like even if, if it's your grandmother. Even <laughs> if it's your friend, your uncle, if they if they call you and say, oh, I'll give you a ride, turn it down. <laughs> if you if you ask them ahead of time, that's okay. Yeah. There's, there's <laughs> Don't all trust little, anybody. There's a big a lot of little trust issue thing going on there. There's all these little Keoke-isms that she passes on to her son. They all involve figuring out ways to survive on the street in the event that gun shooting breaks out. Basically. Yeah. I think another one <laughs> that I remember was never walk back home the same way twice <laughs> or, 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 or go zig, zigzag across the streets instead of going in the straight line. Yeah. Now, I mean, it seems a bit un, unreasonable to, you know, walk 10 extra blocks to get home every time, <laughs> but that, that's how they did it. Hey, they're both alive, right? So it works. <laughs> Yeah, apparently. It really is a thing where it's like she is doing her best to shepherd her child through his childhood. And her best is very alien to us, but makes for very fascinating reading. Yeah, absolutely. Um, One, another character of note that sort of casts a shadow across this book is not a player that we actually meet in person because he's actually not alive anymore, but mm. it was their former state championship winning quarterback, Tonka, yeah. which was, I guess, if we look at this book as 2019, I think he would have been like the 2013 champion, something like that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he was one of the sort of charismatic figures uh, in the book when he was alive. And he, you know, made it out. He made it to, he got a scholarship to an actual Div 1 university and he was going to university. Mm-hmm. But during the summer when he came back, he, he got gunned down. Uh, For no apparent reason. seemingly at random, hard yeah. to hard to say, like they've never solved the murder. But his shadow is over the entire book, I would right. say. Because I, I, 
if it came down to it and you asked uh, coach Bryce Brown, who was his, you know, favorite player of all time, it would probably be Tonka just based on the way he talks about him, based on the way he seems to be connected to him. Probably would have answered that even before he was killed really. And then once he got killed, then it becomes this cross that the coach has to bear for the rest of his career, basically. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So that's some of the main characters. Were there any other ones you wanted to touch on? Not not, not in particular. Not okay. in particular. I mean, there were several different players, um, each with their own individual sort of character quirks and flaws, but none Those of them the stood ones. out in the ways that these characters stood out. I mean... I, I see you've noted down Omari. That's one of the coaches, but yeah. and and he's interesting in that he grew up in a ostensibly like middle class environment. Right. I mean, even though he is African American, he grew up in an environment very different from most of these kids are growing up in. And uh, at the beginning of the book, he he gets into like almost like a fist fight with one of his <laughs> his uh, athletes or one of his football players that he's coaching because he's the wide receiver coach from right. what I remember. Um, but his, his story is, is interesting. Like he came from like a very educated background. His dad was like a professor. Um, but, uh, so yeah. he's the softy, right? Of he's the, the coaching soft- staff. I- exactly. And that, that's because of his upbringing. So maybe the, the, that sort of middle-class upbringing works well in maybe the, the sort of, uh, typical mainstream society, but it may not work as well in, for, for, a uh, football team a high school football team in a really hard scrabble neighborhood may, mm-hmm. he may not connect with his players that well i think even um bryce brown says it himself like he 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 sort of sees like he doesn't have like the potential that other coaches have because he, he can't connect with his players in the same way at the same time he can play good cop bad cop with coach brown right so sometimes there are certain players where a softer hand is called for mm-hmm. and he kind of steps into there and so you kind of see how that dynamic works out on a team where not like a, a football team is a huge enterprise right and of course the head coach probably his personality sets the tone but there are other there is place for other people's personalities to start to shine through and you can start to see that it's this it's this men, it's this blending of viewpoints right like not everyone has to look at everything from like the you know life is real hard life on the street viewpoint there is this other more compassionate viewpoint that Omari brings to the team that helps it in a different way yeah y- even though he bumps heads with coach brown you could almost say that he might be the ideal person to be coaching with yeah. coach brown in that he brings the other you need both yeah, yeah you you need you need both and it, yeah i mean you can't just have a bunch of yes men around you coaching exactly the same way because uh, <laughs> the the players are very you know they're they're individuals and they need an individual approach so let's switch gears we've talked a little bit about the characters let's talk a little bit about the sports writing part of it. Since this is our sports book discussion, we've asked this question at various points, you know, is the book we're reading really a sports book? This book, what did you think of the sports writing in this thing? So it is partially a sports book. Like the whole sort of last quarter of the book where they're, you know, they're they're getting into the playoffs, they're Final moving on to the playoffs. Games, yeah. That has a very Friday Night Lights vibe to it mm. and it feels like you're watching a sports movie in a way and that that felt very much like a sports book 
But if you take the first half of the book, it doesn't feel like that. It feels <laughs> it feels it has a different feel to it. Right. It's, it seems to be more of a commentary on society in an inner city American, right. you know, rough rough city basically. Uh, I mean, I, I think New Orleans was one of the murder capitals of the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, for a city that's not that big, every year they have over a hundred homicides. I compared it to Toronto. Toronto has about a hundred, a little bit more than a hundred homicides per year, but it's like seven times the size, eight times the size, <laughs> ten times the size even uh, of New Orleans. Mm. So, uh, you know, it, we think it's bad here, but there it's like you right. know ten times worse. Um, but I, I, I very much saw it as like a commentary on society with all these little sort of uh, vignettes and anecdotes about you know the players and the coaches that sort of bring right. it all together. What, I, thought what did you were, think? I thought there were some nice nuggets early on talking about the details of the coaching, right? Like the strategy of like, you know, when one team's has a cornerback or a safety that tips the play because he's moving in a certain way. If you pick this up on video, you can exploit this during the game. Like there's a million little details going on in a football game that as a fan, we don't know about. And I thought this book did a pretty cool job of showing some of us some showing us some of that as readers yeah you know what that's that's a good point like they they did talk about certain plays and certain strategies it's not the important part right like the the book is not about this so it kind of gets forgotten but some of it is in there and i thought that was pretty cool Mm -hmm. yeah one actually one other thing that really struck me was and and i'll I'll, i found it very memorable was they talked about the pride panel (laughs) and how Every year, they sort of, uh, like Bryce Brown sort of organizes a few of the coaches and a few of the main players on the team. And they get, a, they, on a, I believe on a weekly basis, they discuss, you know, the football team, how to get better. Everybody is challenged uh, and, and seeing how they, how they respond. Like, that, and, and it could it could take place over several hours, like even into the middle of the morning, it, right. it sounded like at certain points. I was just amazed by that they would actually do this for a high school football team. Like it just shows how important high school football is over there to, to have these sort of different layers of leadership and these different sort of mm. like a, having like a leadership council for your team outside of your, the coaching staff seems like, like that's going pretty far. I would say, <laughs> I don't even know that they would have this on like a pro team to be honest. I don't even know if they would have this in like fortune 500 companies. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So the, the intricacy uh, of how they run their football team kind of amazed me. Like I, I just, I, I couldn't believe like yeah. the, how, how involved they are. In, it in speaks it. to this thing that I think the book touches on indirectly, which is that football is, that football itself is not the main thing it's just a vehicle for what he's trying to do right which is to bring these bring hope to all these people right and that task is so monumental that it involves having to form this huge enterprise to do it right it is it's the stuff like it sounds like it's it sounds like he's trying to win football games but it actually sounds like he's trying to build something that's bigger than a hospital or bigger than a university really right he's trying to empower people who are in a hopeless situation yeah i mean he's trying to build the character of a hundred men let's look a bit at this bigger picture right because i think we've talked a little bit about some of the details of the book We've talked about some of the football aspect, but let's just talk about the bigger picture of this book, which is 
this issue of violence, race in America in 2019 or, or 2023, as it were. What did, what did we learn about this? Well, I think we, we didn't necessarily learn a lot. I mean, these are stories we have heard before, mm. but to hear it described in grisly, gritty detail where, you know, friends are coming to a crime scene and having, seeing their friends um, yeah. put into body bags, right? Or seeing a friend slumped over the wheel of their car with like 10 gunshot wounds in them. Right. It's unfathomable. It's unfathomable. And most of these people in this book live with some level of PTSD over it. And it's just hard to imagine how that affects you. You know, we're not accustomed to this environment. We didn't grow up in this environment. We weren't born into this environment. It's hard for us to relate to it. But these are stories we hear about. These are stories that are documented, right? We keep talking about The Wire, but there's other places where we hear about it. Um, But it is described in pretty grisly detail here. And and it comes up basically every chapter. It's, it feels like you're in a different universe. You know, like we talk about like the metaverse, the idea that there's multiple universes out there that are all different from one another. Yep. Like this is what it feels like, a completely alternate reality that's completely foreign to me as I'm reading it. Like most of the other books we read or the most of the other books we've read we can take some aspect of our life and be like, okay, if, if you and I wanted to climb Mount Everest and we started training for it, that's what it would be like. Right. Or, you know, the Jeremy Lin book, of course, is like, you know, that could be us, but this is completely a different world, except it's not a different world. It's right across the river from a place that many people go to travel and party and, and, you know, affluent people are enjoying themselves. So you just go right across the river and there's a place where body bags are piling up. People are living with this profound sense of hopelessness and none of these problems have any solution, right? It seems like coach is doing what he can to try to lift people up and give them some hope. But you know what? His all time favorite player who did everything by the book died for no reason and throughout the course of this season that we follow him through, all these things keep happening again and again. There are more incidents, you know, he's driving around in the middle of the night looking for players like there's no solution to any of this. So it's gritty. But at the same time, I felt hopeless as I as I went through reading the book. And at some point I was like, it's it, these kind of reading experiences are challenging because I I feel gutted at the end of it. Like, sure, like they're a championship football team but we're not getting anywhere. And that, that's such a frustrating experience. Yeah. I mean, I think the reality is these, um, the, this, this situation is not an easy situation to deal with. And it's like, it's really like an impossible situation to deal with. And it's, mm-hmm. there's no easy solutions. Like politicians will typically or stereotypically invoke like, you know, band-aid solutions. Mm-hmm. And this is what uh, this is what I'm going to do to help with the crime problem in this city. Right. And they're just doing that to get elected. But none <laughs> of it addresses the the root causes of why this happens, right? Nothing, n- None of these solutions ever involves that because right. it's too long-term. People can't think 20 years into the future. They can only think, oh, uh, the, the, the rest of my political term, the next two to three years, what do I have to do to bring the homicide rate down, you know, by 5% so that I can tout my success as mayor, right? That, that's, you know, that's the problem with many, many problems in, in human society. But the way I sort of look at it is, 
even though America is a first world country, there are definitely parts of America that are essentially like third world countries mm-hmm. within this first world country, right? right? And so I think Algiers is very much like a third world country. Maybe not as bad as many third world countries, but sort of it has sort of the, you know, probably the life expectancy, the health rate, the homicide rate of a third world country within this larger first world country. Absolutely. And I mean, the same thing exists in Canada, right? You have all these sort of Aboriginal lands, Mm -hmm. you know, up north. Essentially, they're, you know, they, they have poor, you know, water and electricity. They're essentially living a third world lifestyle within a first world country. And in these areas are sort of, they're almost isolated because nobody wants to venture there and it's known. You don't want to venture in there. Sometimes it feels like it's a zero sum game where for us to be a first world country and have our first world problems, for us to be up, somebody else needs to be down. And we'd all rather be up than down. So since we're up, we're not going to give up our spot. So we'll just maintain the status quo. I, I feel like, I feel like one thing about this particular book is that reading it from the vantage point of us as people who are not from that community, it's, it made me think about how we normally process this as middle class, non-black people. Like you and I watching professional sports on TV, watching black athletes on TV, cheering for black celebrities in music and sports we don't think about this issue right it's completely fine and 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 when this issue starts to creep up even a little bit into what we're watching like alan iverson changes his hairstyle people get uncomfortable right and i feel like we're missing the point because a lot of times i think for us as non-black people we kind of look at these issues that are going on and say these issues are too complicated but these are actually issues that are because of that community, they're being silly. They're shooting each other because of gang violence, and and they shouldn't be doing that. As if this is something that could be easily solved, right? If people just didn't lose their tempers, no one would be dead, right? And we don't realize that these people have no parents when they're growing up. There's no one to guide them along the way. They have no one helping them out. They honestly don't think they're gonna live past the age of 25. So what's the point of worrying about what it'll be like when you're 45? And I don't think any of us gets it. Right. And even us reading this book, it is eye opening, but I don't think it really helps us get it either. I don't don't know. I think it's impossible for us to get. And it just made me frustrated at the end. I felt like I've read so many of these type of things over the years. I've seen so many of these types of things and we're supposed to feel something. And and but at the end, we don't do anything. And the issue just keeps going on. Ten years from now, we're going to read another book about a football team in another town. Right. Or another athlete that died young. And then. And so what? Nothing changes. That's true. And if you remember the last episode of The Wire, um, <laughs> oh, that I, was, I remember that. That was that was sort of the main point. Yeah. Basically, the, the crush, game goes on. The game goes on. New characters come in to to take the role of the other old characters. Um, yeah. The corruption remains in the police force, in the politics, in the school system, in the drug game, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Life just keeps moving forward. Nothing gets better. Um, the end. That that was sort of the <laughs> overall theme right. of, of The Wire at the end, right? Right. And you're probably right. I mean, this, this is not a, a problem that's going away uh, anytime soon. Yeah. But I think it is an important issue 
or it paints it it points at a larger picture that is very important for us to see and feel and I, I mean if that's a starting point then so be it hopefully over time things do change and there are more people like coach brown doing these things right but i'm also hoping that maybe it'll open the eyes of people like us as we're reading this stuff that gives us a little bit more perspective when we start to think about these issues yeah i guess it creates awareness mm -hmm. we're really at that stage where even a little bit of awareness is better than what most of us carry with us on a day-to-day -day basis that's true and you know i can't help but think that for every kid who grows up in this sort of rough environment where they feel hopeless and they feel like they're going to you know not live past the age of 25 or 30 I just wish that they could have their own, you know, Coach Brown mm. to to guide them, like a, a sort of a mentor, a life mentor, a life coach to to help them get through it. At least get them to the the next level of just, you know, being able to live into your thirties, have a family, you know, something like that. I, I wish that everybody could have someone like that. I'm going to ask you an offbeat question here. Having read this book. Does this change your perspective on understanding, say, the antics of Ja Morant? <laughs> that's, that's a really good question. I mean, uh, I don't know much about his past. I don't know much about his upbringing. I'm going to presume that his upbringing was a bit, you know, sketchy at some level. And that's why he feels the need to carry around a firearm at all mm -hmm. times. Um, or his friends need to. Um, I mean, that is also a very American story as well, the idea that you should carry a firearm with you all the time. But it, it's, it's hard. When you're in the spotlight, you definitely need a team around you to manage your behavior, at right. least the behavior you put out there. What he really needs is a stronger team around him to manage him better, basically. He, he has the resources to do that he needs to you know he needs to come up with a better plan um but th that's the thing when you're 21 and you're making you know 25 million dollars a year nobody can tell you anything different right does this help does this book help me relate to him better not really i feel like if i heard his story what his upbringing was like then i then i Maybe. would probably understand it right humans behave in rational ways based on their their, uh, you know, based on their upbringing a lot of the times, not in all times, not perfect. It's not perfectly laid out like that, but I think that would better help me understand him. It does seem a little bit unfair, though, that a big part of the John Morant narrative is that you're getting paid $45 million or $60 million a year. Just put the gun away and you'll get paid, right? And that, I mean, that is one of those ESPN talking points, right? Like, this guy should know better. He has so much to lose. But I feel like what we're missing the point sometimes is guys who grow up in this type of environment, they don't feel like they have anything to lose, right? And no matter how much money you give them, that's their mindset that they're coming from. They have nothing to lose, right? They don't expect to be here 10 years from now. Everything else is just gravy. And I think he expects to be, be here 10 <laughs> years from now at this point. Maybe, yeah. But I think the, a lot of the times... You have these, you're the one person in your neighborhood to make it big. You're the one person mm. in the neighborhood who's going to make big money. So essentially you are the support system for everybody yeah. and that can, you know, take a toll on you. And so it's hard for you to turn your back on your friends, you know. I think a lot, a lot of the times, I, I mean, I'm, 
I'm not saying now, but I would say that a lot of the narrative from like 20 years ago was this narrative about all these, you know, NBA players, for example, having entourages, Mm -hmm. you know, and there's this idea that, okay, as soon as you, as soon as you uh, sign a big contract, you're making a lot of money, you should, you should find better influences in your life. Right. Ditch your friends, essentially. (laughs) That's what that, corporate that's, America is that, telling these guys to do. That's kind of a hard thing to do. These are people you grew up with. These are people you have deep, deep connections with. Mm-hmm. Like, if someone told me, if you know, once I, you know, graduated from university, <laughs> ditch your, ditch your bottom twenty percent friends, I'd be pretty offended by that, right? Like, that's that's that doesn't seem like a cool thing to mm. to say, right? Uh, it, it ignores the human element of you know relationships and these deep-seated connections you you develop over time you've been through everything together right mm-hmm. they've had your back your, your your whole life like you can't turn your back on people like that <laughs> absolutely i thought one thing i got out of this book kind of unrelated to this but i guess it's sort of related is is this book actually shows the the positive side of football which we haven't read about or spoken about too much in recent years right like Pretty much every time we talk about football, we talk about how it's dangerous. People are going to die from head injuries. The players are, you know, one foot in prison, one foot on the field. The culture of American football is a pretty negative place to be if you're actually thinking about social consciousness and things like that. But this book actually tells us that football, even now, can still be a vehicle for change, which I thought is a nice way to think about this sport. Right. Like it's overall way too negative. And here Coach Brown is using it as a beacon of hope for his players. I really appreciated that, actually. I hadn't heard this narrative in a long, long time. Yeah, that, that, that's true. Like it's it's a metaphor for community. It's a metaphor for family. In many cases, these are the only families that these players have. Mm-hmm. And so that's they're they're fostering these sort of deep human connections that you need as a human. You need some connections with other humans. Um, you know, s- something that will keep your head on straight, something that'll keep you out of trouble. Right. And this, in this case, high school football in New Orleans is a way to do that. Yeah. And yeah, you know, I appreciate that message. That's a, that was very well put, Dave. So in conclusion, <laughs> what are your overall thoughts on this book? Did you like this book? Did you not like this book? What do you, what, I what do you take away book. from it? I enjoyed this book overall in terms of what it's trying to do. I felt like it was a little bit difficult of a book to read for me. Uh, it's one of the few books that you finished way before I did, right? I was like, I think it's the only one. <laughs> I was struggling for a while with this book. I think because it's so dense, right? And it's not uplifting. In a like, you know, we talked about a bit about some of the uplifting themes at the end, but really, it is a difficult book. It's like watching all the dark parts of the wire in sequence, like one after the next, right? Without too much humor without too much like uh, inspiring stuff until the end, right? Mm -hmm. And so I thought it was a challenge that way, but it really does shed light on some very important issues. So if you wanted me to rank like the importance of this book in the grand scheme of all the books we've read, this is probably near the top, right? Like these messages and lessons from this book are much more important than knowing the details of Andre Agassi's love life 20 years ago, right? But at the same time, it's not an easy book to read. Yeah, it, it is a very serious book. Like there's there's almost 
there's no humor in it. I don't I don't think I laughed once when I was reading the book. It was just a very serious yeah, unless, read. Unless you find all the gratuitous swearing and use of the N-word and that kind of locker room stuff funny. Otherwise, yeah, it's pretty serious. Yeah, but I, I would say my overall impression is that I, I really enjoyed it and I, I wouldn't hesitate to recommend it to anybody, really. Um, I, I would say this is, out of the books we've read, we've read like we're on to 17 or 18 now. Yeah. I would say this is in the top six books that we've read in my opinion i know Pro- that's high problem praise with recommending it though is it's so dense like a lot of the people we know i don't know about you but a lot of people i know don't read a ton right so when you're recommending them a book you want to get them a book that'll bring out the love of reading right and that's where like andre agassi's biography comes in or or even the mike tyson book comes in right this book is dense like this book you have to be ready to put on your as kobe Bryant would say put on your big boy pants and come to play right this is not an easy book to read yeah it's true dave actually the reality is nobody reads anymore except for us (laughs) and we're the two you know beacons of hope for for reading in north america in 2023 and that's why we're doing this podcast (laughs) exactly (laughs) having said that I would recommend it to people who are looking for something a little bit deeper to read. You know, if people are like, have you guys read Friday Night Lights? I'm going to be like, no, we read Across the River. This is better than Friday Night Lights. Wow. You're, you're okay. That's high praise because Friday Night Lights is considered a classic. It is considered a classic and it is interesting, but it is also very dated, right? It's following a football team and the culture of an American town, I think in the 1980s. Um, yeah, I think you might be right, like the late 1980s, early 1990s. Yeah. I think it was, was it Odessa, Texas? Yeah, I mean, yeah. then it got made into all the show and the movies. And the movie, this yeah. Is, this is like today. It's overdone. And this is much more dealing with the complexities of of Black Lives Matter, really. And I, I think from that standpoint, this is a better book than that. Yeah, I, I could, if this book was a Netflix series, <laughs> I think it would be worth watching. I think it would be an interesting watch. There's enough there enough layers to it that, that this would make for a very interesting Netflix show. Now, you would you would watch it if it's on Netflix, but would you watch it if it was just on FX or Hulu? Because there is a show, apparently, that follows the coach around called Algiers. So people who are interested in this and don't want to read the book, Google that at the end of this episode. I had, check out Algiers. I had no idea. Is it, is it based on... This it's a story? miniseries, yeah. It's not based on this season. I think it might be based on a more it, recent season. Is it a documentary or is it a... It's a documentary. It is a documentary. <laughs> and is Coach Bryce Brown in it? I If I revealed that, it would give away whether he stays at the school or oh, not. Okay, okay. Fair <laughs> enough, fair enough. Um, but you can read between the lines. Okay, okay. Um, I think that about wraps it up. Why don't I take us away with a uh, ending quote? Wait, wait, wait. I thought you were going to nominate it for the Pantheon. I didn't put it on my list because I was curious whether you would or not. But now I guess you're no, not. No, I'm going to fall short of that. Like, <laughs> I, I I did think about it, mm. but I think I know your answer anyways. <laughs> so what is the point of me pounding the table for this book? I'm not going to pound it that hard. I'm just going to tap on the table for this book. Give it a little nice little applause, golf clap. Yeah. I, for me, one of the Pantheon criteria has to be rereadability. Right. Like it has to be something that I might want to read again. It's so good. This book falls a little short on that part only. Oh, before I get to the ending quote, we should talk about what we're going to read next. I don't even know what we're reading next. I think that I, I have an idea and it might be I think we should go a little bit off the we path are, of where we've gone. We've so already far. been off. We're so far off. We've been, but, we've been to Nepal. 
now we're in Algiers. Like, where else can we go? Where else can we go? Brazil. Brazil, <laughs> baby. That's all I'm going to say. All right. And we're not talking about football, apparently. No, we're not. But that's all we're going to say. You go to car, so your reality and your imagination have to be big, he says. Because if you have limited mindsets, then you're going to have limited goals. Then you're going to have limited dreams, and you're going to have a limited reality. You know the last thing I will talk about about this book? I've, there was a really interesting thing that they mentioned of what happens when, like a, when their team, which is all black, plays against yep, a team of yep. white guys. I, I didn't want to get into that too much because it was... I didn't know. I didn't know if I bought that, that theory. <laughs> they, they, the black team loses control. They're so edgy and angry yeah. that they end up not being able to execute their game plan and playing into, playing into the hands of the white teams. Or, but there was another deeper level where he said, like, deep down, they don't feel like they deserve to win, something mm, like that, yeah. which I felt was a, a, maybe going a bit too far. It's pretty deep psychological analysis <laughs> of it. I um, mean... As a Chinese who's played in some organized basketball, and sometimes we encounter black teams, I mean, I do understand this idea when we feel like we are never going to beat these teams. You know, they, we just show up at the court and already we know we're not going to win. And that's our mindset. That does happen. But they're probably just better than you when it comes <laughs> down to it anyway. But you don't know. They haven't done anything yet. We're, we're already in our Making own a lot head. of assumptions. But football is not a white sport, though. That's the thing. Yeah, that's the interesting thing about this, right? Yeah. I I assumed that the white players would look at the black players and think that instead, right? Yeah. This is actually saying that the black players, because they're so used to whatever it is, the culture that they live in of being put down, that they've taken this characteristic on themselves. Yeah, I mean, one thing they they noted was that in New Orleans, the average white family. Uh, their their average sort of household income is three times more than the average black family. I think it was like twenty seven thousand versus like mm. seventy five thousand, something like that, which is a pretty large scale disparity when you think about it. Um, I, I also the the idea that there's actually white teams and black teams is also kind of intriguing to me. Like <laughs> we live in a fairly multicultural place. How is this intriguing to you? There are black schools. I I, I don't know. It's just. I don't know, just this concept didn't never occur to me that like you could have a team that's like virtually all white players and a team that's like pretty much all black players, like with no like very little Didn't you else. watch Friday Night Lights? They had this plot line in Friday Night Lights. No, what really? Remember at the end the they they had the quarterback and then he ended up having remember the coach? The coach switched teams. He had to end up coaching a black team. Like near the end. Oh, is this the TV show or the, the movie? TV show. Oh, I never watched the TV show. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I watched the movie. I, I appreciated how this book really shoved some aspects of race right at us. Because yeah. generally our society is too politically correct to talk about this stuff. Right? You're watching like a basketball game on TV or like and and let's say you're watching Duke and they roll out like their three white guys. Everyone in the gym, everyone is thinking, oh, here, here comes white Duke again, right? But nobody's saying it because it's too, too taboo to talk about it. But we're all thinking it. At least this book just puts it out there. Let's just talk about this stuff already. We're all thinking it anyway. 